When I say I'm a child of God, but I still live for me, myself, and I, my comforts, my preferences, and ultimately I try to justify sin in creative ways, I seriously need to stop and assess whether I'm truly born again. And if, I'm, if I really am born again, then I must assess what lies am I believing? And where is my life not in line with the Word of God? Hello and welcome to the Love Key Church podcast, where we share our church's message of the week. My name is Heinz Winkler, and together with my wife, children, and our leadership team, we host Love Key Church here in Somerset West, online, and on this podcast. It is our mission to help you to encounter God, align with His purposes, reign in life, and help others to do the same. We trust that you will find this message empowering, encouraging, and inspiring. Please share it with your friends and family and write a review for us. And a huge thank you goes out to those who have already done so. May you be thoroughly blessed as you listen to this message. We're busy with a series, new series called One Gospel, One Church. Do you believe there's only one gospel? Do you believe there's only one church? The church of Jesus, amen? And um, it's about the book of Romans, which is actually more accurately described as a letter from Paul to the Roman church. And the first time we spoke two weeks ago, it was about one standard. And then we also dove in first about the, what is the background of this letter, and we had sort of a summary of the, of the book. And I just want to quickly remind you, one of the best summaries that, that I could share with you is that Paul helps the church to understand what is justification, that it's imputed by God to believers, and it deals with the penalty of sin. He speaks about sanctification, which is imparted, and a process as we walk by the Spirit, which deals with the power of sin over our lives. And then finally, he he shares that at the end, we will go into glorification, which is when everything is completed and then we are completely free from the presence of sin. So Jesus came so that the penalty of sin can be removed. As we walk with him, his spirit helps us to get away from the power of sin. And at the end, when we are with him, there will be no more sin. It'll be completely dealt with. Amen. So the one standard that we dealt with as we did chapter one and two had to do with God's righteousness, God's righteousness. And I hope that you were also blessed by the story of Martin Luther, the, who started the Reformation, where he always thought that the righteousness of God was this thing that he could never attain and never live up to. It's impossible until he had the revelation that the righteousness of God is something he wants to give to us. It's something that's available through his son, not by works, Amen? And that's what we're going to get into today. Um, but Paul also explains why the gospel is the gospel, why is it good news, and how horrible the situation in our world is, and why the gospel is the answer to the situation. We saw how Paul shows us um, just how bad it is, how far people have rebelled against God, and how he made a choice to not glorify the creator, but to rather glorify creatures and created things. Talking about man 
Um, and this made God give people up to the futility of their minds, which led to more sin and depravity. And we saw how bad that gets. And then chapter 2 dealt with the self-righteousness of the Jews. And because we saw that he's writing to a divided church between Jews and Gentiles. And there were issues between these two groups. And now he's addressing them. And a lot of those issues are very relevant to us today. And so it's why I believe God wants us to go through this. The day we, the message we're going to talk about is one way. We spoke about one standard. Today it's about one way. And we continue this series and we're going to talk about chapter 3 and 4 in the book of Romans. We now know that God's standard is His righteousness his version of righteousness, his definition of righteousness, not ours, not man-made, his definition. But now the question could be, or should be, so how do we get there? How do we reach this standard? If it is available, what is the way that we get it? And we're gonna talk about that one way. There is only one way to get it. Some of you may remember an old song, one way, Jesus, you're the only one that I can live for. Yeah, like a, sorry for that last note, it was very off. Okay, so we're going to read together. We're going to pick up where we left off last time, which is the very last verse or verses of chapter 2, and because we want to see how it leads in. Remember, when the Bible was written, it wasn't written in chapters and verses. So a lot of the stuff actually flows one to the other. So let us read together from Romans 2, verse 28. He says to the Jewish believers, you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law, rather it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. Is it not there? All right. I hope the other ones are. <laughs> and a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. So, and I want you to remember this. He talks about, he's talking to the self-righteous legalistic Jews when he says this. And it's, it reminds us again that God looks at our hearts and he wants to see that a change has taken place. So on the outside, you can have everything right according to people. But have you really changed on the inside? I remember this song. I, I'm a huge Stephen Curtis Chapman fan. If you don't know who that is, you know, please come to repentance. Uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman is, is a, one of the legends in Christian music and played a big role in my life as a young Christian. But he had this one song. The song was called, What About the Change? And he said, you know, it's great when you have a, a welcome mat to bless someone when they enter your house. It's great to have the little fish sticker on your car and to have a what would Jesus do bracelet on your arm. But what about the change? Has your life really changed? Has the fruit of God really started to flow through your life? And this is what he's asking the Jewish believers. And this sign of a changed heart is something I want you to just keep in the back of your mind as we go into the one way we're going to talk about today. Now we jump into chapter 3 
And we start seeing more of how Paul anticipates objections and questions to his statement. Some of the scholars that study the book of Romans, they say this thing reads more like a lecture than a letter because it's very well thought out and laid out. And he anticipates what some of the readers might say, your but this and your but that. And he's got all the your buts sort of organized. All right, so we're gonna see a bit of that. So let us read together from Romans 3 verse 1. He says, what advantage then is there being a Jew? So is that just to all the Jews? It's not about being Jewish. It's about changing the heart. And now he's expecting them to say, okay, but are you saying it doesn't help to be Jewish? <laughs> Can we understand that? Okay. What advantage is there being Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision, which is a big deal to the Jews? And he, now he answers them, much in every way. In other words, there is advantage. First of all, listen to this. The Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Another translation says the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. And another translation says the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. How beautiful is that? And we continue. What if some were unfaithful? So the Jewish people are trusted with the words of God. And now you may ask, but what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? He answers, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. So Paul is anticipating that some Jews might be a bit resentful or hurt or dare I say, offended at his statements, which is a word that is very commonly used in our church at the moment as we study the book, Bait of Satan. <laughs> Some people are even offended by the word offended. So they are offended about the things that Paul is saying. Are you now saying being a Jew means nothing? That's coming up. And this is something that we probably see in our everyday lives. I don't know about you, but I feel like I, I see this often. You might, you might say something to make one point, and then someone hears what you say, and they make a complete other assumption of what you mean. And they are hurt. And you're like, that's not what I meant. <laughs> Have you ever had that happen? Anyone? Okay. But... Paul has an answer for his anticipated question, and it's a beautiful answer, as we heard. It's about how God has entrusted the Jewish people with his very words. It's so beautiful. And I want you to remember that, the words of God, because it all ties back into the one way, all right? And then he introduces a sad pattern of some being unfaithful to God and points out that the unfaithfulness of people toward God does not affect how solid and consistent and pure God's faithfulness is. How many of you are happy that God remains faithful even if we are unfaithful? All right, thank God. <laughs> and just on that note, I find it's interesting and important to note that Paul goes on to talk about Faith, which I'm giving it away, is the one way. And he's first addressed unfaithfulness. He's addressing unfaithfulness in people and the faithfulness of God. What is unfaithful? It's when you are not one of faith. 
You have lost your faith and therefore you are acting contrary to what you said you are committed to. Are we in agreement? So, but God will never do that because he's not a man that he should lie. Do you believe that? How many of you have struggled with that idea? Like, oof, if God, what he says is really true, then why? If we're honest, we've all had those moments. But what is your conclusion? Your conclusion can never be that God is a liar because then the enemy has you in a lie and he will steer you off the path. So if anyone thinks God is a liar, please repent, go back to him and, and stay, stay focused and, and just in his presence and he will show you what's going on. Romans 3 from verse 5, we're going to continue. Now there's an important but. But some might say, our sinfulness serves a good purpose. For it helps people to see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? This is merely a human point of view. Of course not, says Paul, answering his own question again. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But someone might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? Can you hear the attitude? And some people even slander us by claiming that we say, the more we sin, the better it is. Sounds like a musical. The more we sin, the better it is. <laughs> Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. So how many of you have heard a child or an adult say, it's not fair, it's not fair. Look at this and look at this and look at me and it's not fair. I have a home with four children, we hear it often. Or you, you say to one child, hey, well done, that was great. It's like, what about me? When I compliment the one, I'm not automatically dissing you. <laughs> but grown-ups can be the same. <laughs> it's not fair. God does this to them and this to them, and what about me? We, we hear this, amen? Maybe not amen, but you know, we hear it. What Paul is saying here, in a way, is do you really want to compare God's sense of fairness with your own? Do you really want to compare the king of the universe, the sovereign God who made everything, the judge over the whole world, do you want to really compare his sense of fairness with your own human way of understanding fairness. That's what I'm hearing from Paul. He's dealing with an immature attitude where someone will say, well, since my sinfulness proves God's righteousness, surely I should just keep sinning. When I sin, I show how righteous God is, so I will just keep on sinning. What a lack of excuse. It sounds so nice, you know? And how many times have you heard people justify something and you hear it and you go, mm. 
I don't think that's biblical. <laughs> but they sound so convincing because they've convinced themselves. I've, I mean, and maybe you've, I've, we've done it ourselves. You know, we kind of let something in our lives happen or we form a habit and we're very quick to excuse it. I mean, and you can see an attitude of trying to find a loophole in the word of God to live the way they want to live. Yes, Jesus, yes, church, great, but I'd still like to do this. And if I do this, it glorifies God. Win-win. Do you see this attitude? All right. We, um, but such an attitude is still steeped in selfishness and pride and does not sound like the attitude of a born-again believer. Would you agree? So the one argument Paul mentions here even wants to pull in the glory of God. So even someone is even trying to say, you know, when I sin, I glorify God. When I lie, I glorify God because I show his truthfulness. What a crazy attitude. But this, these are attitudes that Paul had to deal with because they were present. And it's, it's an evil and a warped way of thinking. But Paul deals swiftly with those who think this. And he says, those who think like this, he even uses those words. He's saying, those who have this mindset, those who have set their minds to think this way, to excuse sin in their lives, as if they are glorifying God, they deserve to be condemned. Boom. So he's putting up all the arguments, all the stuff that people might say, and then he says, if you think this way, you are condemned. Be careful. Why are they condemned? Well, when I say I'm a child of God, but I still live for me, myself, and I, my comforts, my preferences, and ultimately I try to justify sin in creative ways, I seriously need to stop and assess whether I'm truly born again. And if, I'm, if I really am born again, then I must assess what lies am I believing? And where is my life not in line with the word of God? Understood? Okay. Now remember, he is speaking at the moment. He's speaking to two groups of people, but this segment definitely focuses on the Jewish people. So he's speaking to the Jews in the church who are struggling with the Gentiles because the Gentiles don't want to be circumcised. Imagine that. Why can't you get excited about being circumcised? And the, and the Gentiles are like, we're free, bro. We're free. He's speaking to the Jewish believers with a religious spirit. They've got a religious spirit. And this kind of religious spirit is unfortunately still alive and well today. Anywhere that you find Christianity in a culture, you will find some form of religion. Now, when the, when, the, when the Bible speaks of religion, it means the faith in God. But unfortunately, the word religion has caught on many different meanings in our lifetime. And you even get Christians, you know, it was a buzz thing at a, at a time to say, I don't follow a religion, I follow a relationship with God. You know, and it puts these things against each other. And then when people who are not born again or understand the language that you use say, are you religious? You go, no, I'm not religious. And they're like confused. 
You need to know your audience. <laughs> but anywhere we find a Christian faith in a culture, we will find some form of religiousness. And they, and they say they're the people of God and under the law. This is what, what the Jews are saying. And this is the thing that happens with religion when it is, what, be, what happens is the word of God is there and it's, it seems like mostly the leaders are reading the word of God and the average member of the church is not reading the word of God so much. They put a lot of faith and trust in the leaders and then the leaders go like, yeah, this is what the word of God says and then they start adding things. They make up rules. They make up man-made traditions and rituals and then before you know it, it becomes law and it becomes something that everyone has to do in order to and it becomes this transactional thing you know there's some churches where if you were not sprinkled with water as a baby which they call baptism but it's not baptism if you weren't sprinkled as a baby and your name was written in a book then you can't when you're 18 announce to the church that you are now a born-again believer which most of them Truly or not, I, I was through that process myself. I stood next to people who do not believe in Jesus. They just did it. Why? Because they were sprinkled with water as a baby, and now they have to do this because one day they want to get married in this church. And you can't get married in this church if you didn't do those things. It's not about a full conviction from a relationship with God. It's because of man-made rules. That's what I'm talking about. And that's law. And law kills while the spirit brings life. Amen? Now we need to be aware of the same spirit today. We should, we should be able to discern if this kind of thinking is in us. Always start with yourself. Do I have a log in my eye, but I'm trying to show the splinter in someone else's eye? If I know that I've dealt with it, then the second level of discernment is, do I spot this in our midst? And then we need to address it. Because we sit here in a room full of people. Some of you maybe have gotten saved in this church. Hallelujah, praise God. Some of you may have come from other churches and other traditional churches or experiences. And you come with, let's say, luggage. <laughs> no, I want to call it baggage. You come with some kind of baggage. A way of thinking. And if you grew up in a church of a traditional kind, then you are more influenced than you think because that was normal to you. But you need to know that culture is always man-made. It's always man-made. People thought it up. They formed things. That's why God calls us to a godly culture, a culture where we lay down all the things and we come to him and we form a Jesus culture to quote a band name. But that's what God wants for us, amen? A religious spirit will always kill, pull down, bring heaviness, whereas the spirit of God will bring freedom and, and it'll light things up and it will get rid of burdens, amen? Amen, good. All right, let us continue with Romans 3 from verse nine. In the New King James, it says, what then, are we better than they? Why can he say that? Because Paul is a Jew and a Pharisee. So he's saying to the Jews in that congregation, are we better than they? In other words, those who are not of the Jewish faith. 
not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, and now Paul kicks into, I know the word of God, people, gear. (laughs) There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Yes, but all people are kind of good in, you know, in general. No, not one has done good, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. (coughs) The law does not set free. The law shows us how sinful we are and how much we need Jesus. In the New Living Translation, that last part says, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. I wanna quote this line again. We have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. The Jews now hear that they are under sin the same way the Gentiles are. (laughs) What a shock. Offense was probably taken again. How can you say that we are the same as the Gentiles? That must have been a hard saying for them. Paul launches into multiple Old Testament scriptures that list the absolute sinful depravity of man, ending with this line, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul himself was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law and the prophets very well. And before his conversion, he used these same scriptures to hunt Christians. But after his conversion, after he became new, he suddenly saw how the scriptures were all pointing to Jesus. And now he's trying to help these Jews. He says he's using scripture to show the Jews he's writing to, knowing well how they would be thinking because he comes from that same background. He understands their culture. He understands their religious spirit. And he's speaking into that. And he's, he's, he's trying to show them how the law was not their salvation. The law was a schoolmaster. It was to teach them what sin is and how far they have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, this is a continuation of the one standard of God's righteousness. Paul is building an argument all throughout this letter. So his previous points are still valid And um, I want to show you this next part. So Paul introduces the one way now. He's been speaking about the one standard, one standard. Now it's the one way. And the one way that we can get to the one standard of this one gospel for the one church of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Are you still with me? Are you still excited about this? Thank you, Jesus. All right. We're going to pick it up in verse 21. I'm going to read quite a bit now. Let's focus together. This is from the New Living Translation. But now God has shown us a way, one way, to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. Justification, imputed, takes care of the penalty of sin. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. What did we sing today? The blood, how important that is. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair. He's answering that question from earlier again. People saying, how is it fair? He's saying the sacrifice of Jesus that God shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. That's his grace. God this, did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. He makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on, everyone says, faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. And all the Gentiles say, hallelujah. <laughs> there is only one God. Everyone says one God. And he makes people right with himself only by, only by, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Boom, drop the mic. I can't say it better than Paul. The truth is there, plain written out to a church where there are not only Jews, but Gentiles as well, making it clear that this message, the good news, is for all. Can you now clearly see the connection between God's one standard of his righteousness and the one way of faith in Jesus Christ? Who he is and what he has done. What is the one way? Faith. How many of you know what faith is? Because if you don't know what faith is, the one way will elude you to get to the one standard. Does anyone wanna come preach on what faith is? 
None of you have faith in yourselves to preach about faith. <laughs> what is faith? Who can tell me where we read a definition of faith? Yes, shout a scripture. Hebrews 11 verse one is one of the most famous ones. We're gonna read that, but I think I've done this in a sermon before. We're gonna start at the last two verses of Hebrews 10 because it introduces the chat about faith. So listen up. Hebrews 10 from verse 38. And, but my righteousness, sorry, but my righteous one will live by faith. So by faith, we live a righteous life. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, amen? But to those who have faith and are saved. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. I feel like I need to read that again. My righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. We belong to those who have faith and are saved. Do you belong to those who, are, who have faith and are saved? Come on. Now faith is. So he's talking about faith and now he is defining it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We get a confirmation here from the writer of Hebrews that righteousness comes by faith. There is one way to the one standard, faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is the substance, he says. Faith is the substance. So we've got a definition. What is faith? Faith is the substance of something, of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't make sense to you. Because evidence is seen. This should challenge you. So we need to know what the substance is. Faith is substance of, is the substance of things hoped for. So can I hope if I don't have substance? How many of you have hoped before and nothing happened? Anyone? What was that like? Fun? Because there's a difference between hope and faith. Hope is a part of faith, but you need the substance before you can hope. You need the substance before you can see the evidence that's not seen. What? It's a bit of a riddle. Huh? You cannot hope if you don't have substance. So what is the substance? Let us read the first few verses of Romans starting, oh, sorry, let us read the next few verses of Romans starting with the last verse of Romans 3. Romans 3.31 says, Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. People think that Paul is throwing the law away. But he clearly states he's not. It's working together. He just dropped a truth bomb that Jew and Gentile are both saved by faith in Jesus Christ and not by the law or works. So the question might come up to the Jews, so does faith now nullify the law? And Paul says, no, rather it upholds it. And then 
he launches into the significance of Abraham's faith. He's still busy with the Jewish believers. He's still busy with those who are locked into religion. And he wants to show them by their father Abraham, who they obviously have a lot of reverence and respect for. He wants to show by Abraham what faith is. Now remember Hebrews 11.1, okay? We're going to read Romans 4, verse 1 to 25, which is the whole Romans 4. <laughs> Are you strapped in? The reason for that is I tried to summarize this, but it's, it's better to hear it from Paul. All right, let's read. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefathering according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? This matter being faith. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. So when I think that I achieved the righteousness of God by what I did, I've got something to boast about. And Abraham doesn't have that. It says, but not before God, he doesn't have anything to boast about. What does Scripture say? Paul asks, the scripture says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Belief, righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. And everyone who pulls a salary goes, yes. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And everyone who doesn't draw a salary goes, hallelujah. <laughs> David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. David says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. It is this blessedness, or is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised? Or before? Can you see how clever Paul is? He's setting them up. It was not after but before. He answers his own question. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Yeah, papi, honored, lekker. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abram had before he was circumcised. Can you see the case that Paul is making? It was not through the law that Abraham had his, and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. The law did not exist yet when Abraham was justified by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there's no law, there's no transgression. 
Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Do you believe that? As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He's, the, he's our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. Against all hope. Everybody says against all hope. Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Look at the stars, look at the sand. That's how your offspring will be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded. Everyone says fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but us also. You can hear yourself in his script only, isn't he? It is for us. To whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Thank you, Jesus. Can you see why I read the whole chapter? You just can't take one thing out. Like it's, we need to read the Bible in context. Amen? Can I go a little bit longer? Are you with me? Thank you. The Holy Spirit will sustain us. This power is, this, this chapter is so powerful. And here is where we find our answer to the question, what is the substance? You remember that question? Any goldfish in the room? Remember the question about what is the substance, Hebrews 11.1. One. All right. In this line, we get a hint to the answer. Abraham being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. God gave Abraham a promise that he will be the father of many nations. Do you think that Abraham knew at that time that God meant Jews and Gentiles? I don't know. When he looked at the stars and the sand, he probably just went, well, that's a lot of Jews. <laughs> I don't know. But today, I don't even know if most Manianic Jews or Gentiles know about this passage that says that all who are in Christ are in Abraham and part of that covenant. That's huge. How did God deliver the promise to him? How did God give his promise to Abraham? How? Really? No one? He spoke, guys. I promise you. <laughs> it's not, it was near, it was near fast for all He spoke. How did God create everything? He spoke. What did he say to Abraham? 
you will be the father of many nations. He spoke. He gave a word. Isaiah 55 says that no, all words that go from the mouth of God will not return void and will accomplish what it is set out to do. So Abram had a word from God. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. He could hope that he will be the father of many nations because he had substance, because he had a word from God. Is the bomb dropping? All right, some of you know this already because I've preached on this already, but we need to be reminded regularly of what faith is. The one, yeah, God is not a man that he should lie, so we can know that his word is true. He is the, the God of heaven. The earth is his footstool. We need to know that when he speaks, there's weight behind his word. Abraham was 100 years old when he received the promise and had to believe that despite the reality of his and his wife's bodies, that God will do what he says. So the substance of God's word gave him the thing he could hope for, having a son. Did he have millions in his lifetime? No. He had the one son. He had another one. We'll get to that now. The son of promise. Interesting to note that, the, that Paul and the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, when it goes on to the hall of faith, they make it sound like Abram never doubted and did everything right. But when we read the account in Genesis, we see that he lied a few times and on his wife's suggestion, they tried to make God's promises come in their own strength. And he slept with the handmaiden or the maiden and, and Ishmael was born. Now, what is the result of doing things our own way when we get tired of waiting on God? It is the Ishmaels of this world. The consequence of impatience to the fulfillment of the promise of God can be devastating and far-reaching. And then the promise came. And I believe when we read Hebrews and Romans, the reason that they say he was, he never wavered in his faith, because God, when he, when he ultimately did believe and he did trust and the right thing did happen, it was counted to him as righteousness. He was made Right. All the mistakes were washed clean because he was made right. You can argue with me theologically if you want about that, but that's one way that I see Hebrews and Romans and Genesis come together on that point. The bottom line is when God has spoken, you have substance. Don't try to force it with your own ways. Trust the Lord. Amen. Now, later on, the son is now born. The promise has come. The word that was spoken has come to fruition. Now we read in Hebrews, later in Hebrews, that, and obviously in Genesis, the account where God says, now this son that I gave you, this promise that has been fulfilled, listen, the word of God that became flesh. The word of God became flesh. And then he said to him, Go sacrifice this promise. Take the promise that I've given you and kill it. 
Can you imagine? Anyone ever prayed for a child? You struggled, eventually had a child. Imagine God coming to you and saying, give me that child. And you don't know what he means, how he's gonna handle it. But in Hebrews, we see a glimpse into the thinking of Abram and the writer says to us, he believed that God had the power to raise him from the dead. Why? Because he had substance. God said, I believe. He said it, I believe it, it'll be done. So even if he tells me to kill the very promise that he gave me, he will have a way. I don't understand, I don't have the answers, but I know by faith in his word that he knows. And Hebrews says that he believed God will raise him from the dead. What does that mean? It means that Abram was planning on killing his boy. He was planning on going through with it. Why? Because God said so. And he was shocking, obedient. How many of us are on that level of obedience because of our faith that God can ask you anything and you will say, yes, reporting for duty. Where are we going? How many of us are really there? Because that's the faith that God is calling us to. And that's the way to the one standard. Now, if that is the kind of faith that justified Abraham, so that's the faith that he was justified by. Are we in agreement? And Paul says that this faith is the one way we as Gentiles and also the Jews are able to live the one standard, then we need to ask ourselves, is this how I believe in who Jesus is and in what he has done for me? Do I believe it? We have to ask ourselves that question. Now, God spoke a word, the word became flesh, then he said, kill, and then he saved. Do you see that pattern? Let's read one, John 1 from verse 1 and then also from verse 10. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. How did God create? He spoke a word. Who was in the beginning with him? His son, Jesus. The Word was with God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. Who? Jesus. And nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything and was that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. He came into the very world he created but the world didn't recognize him. They did not have the fear of God before their eyes. He came to his own people and even they rejected him, the Jews. But to all who believed him, and accepted him. He gave the right to become children of God. Who are the children of God? Those who believe and accept. Not those who reject, who question. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Wow. I once had someone who argued with me. He says, nowhere in the Bible does it say you're born again. Um, have you read the Bible? It is very clear that we need to be born again. 
Jesus goes on in chapter three to say it in so many words. If you wanna see and enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And in order to be born again, he's already covered it in chapter one, you need to believe and accept Jesus Christ. How do you do that? By faith. It is the one way to righteousness. God promised the people a savior, the Messiah. He gave his people a word, a promise. The promise was also for the Gentiles and this was also promised, but conveniently ignored by those who didn't wanna share their God with Gentiles. So the Jews knew that God, the Messiah that God was gonna send is also for the Gentiles. It's in the scriptures. They chose to ignore it and keep it for themselves. And this word from God that promised the coming of the Messiah was fulfilled in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ who became flesh. The promise became flesh. You must realize people, everything in the Old Testament is a shadow of Jesus Christ. Abraham receives a promise of a son. A son is born, a promise. Impossible, it was a miraculous birth. What kind of birth did Jesus have? A miraculous birth. Some of you are not following. Don't need to explain it. Am I preaching too long? Are you with me? This is the word of God. Your lunch can wait. This is more important. Are you with me? All right, okay. Jesus is the word of God. He was prophesied by the word of God. Jesus is the substance of things hoped for. He is the evidence of things not seen. That is what it is to have faith in Jesus. He is our substance. Because by the word of God, we get the word of God who is our substance. Let me not even get into the whole thing of seeds. It gets very exciting. Jesus is a person who can, be, who can be known and who wants to be intimately acquainted with each of us. We need to settle in our hearts that he is the main promise from God and that he has already been given and has done all needed for us to be made righteous. The promise has been given. We need to receive the promise because he has already done everything needed. The key to unlocking the one standard of God is the one way by faith. It is to believe with all that we have, every fiber of our, in every bit of our spirit being, that Jesus is the son of the living God, that he did die for all sins of all time and that in him there is forgiveness of sin, righteousness in God and life everlasting. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you have faith? Has that faith led to a change of heart? Thank you so much for listening to the Love Key Church Podcast message of the week. I trust that you had a life-changing encounter with God that will help you to align with His purposes so that you can be one step closer to reigning in life. And may you be inspired to share this with others. Have a great week and remember to listen again next week or you can catch us live online or come visit us in person. May God bless you and keep you. Make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you and your loved ones. God bless you. Bye-bye.